Hey, Rich. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I actually just finished uh, reading your book. It's called Sitting with God, and it's all about, you know, the centering prayer and how that's transformed the lives of you and, and the people who follow you. And, um, you know, we're here today to talk about some of those things and, you know, including what it is, how people might be able to practice it and all of the fun things that go, go along with it. So thanks for being here. Great. No, I appreciate it. Hopefully this will be helpful for your community. Yeah. I, um, so how about we start off with just a little bit about how you sort of came to this point where, you know, you started practicing this centering prayer, or maybe even a little bit about what it is first, and then, you know, how you got into the practice of it. Sure. So centering prayer is considered two things. It's considered meditation and a relationship with God. Um, because during centering prayer, we believe we're opening to the presence and actions of God within us. Mm -hmm. And centering prayer itself, a little history, it's, it's been around since the early 1970s. So it's about 50 years old. It was actually created by three Trappist monks, so three Catholic priests in the early 70s. Um, saw that um, other forms of meditation were happening, and they wanted something for the Christian community. And one of the priests was reading a book, a 14th century book called The Cloud of Unknowing, and as he read it, kind of a method of wordless, silent meditation prayer kind of jumped off the pages as he read it. So they began practicing amongst themselves, they began uh, teaching other clergy, and then they really just began rolling it out to the, to the public. Mm -hmm. And then about 10 years later in 1984, the Contemplative Outreach Organization was created by Thomas Keating, which really, even today, is really the main centering prayer organization. So their website is contemplativeoutreach.org. If you go on their site, you'll find a ton of resources on centering prayer. You'll find events. You'll find groups that practice uh, worldwide, not in the U.S. as well as internationally. So you could find a group and, and practice with them. Now many of them, are, I guess, are doing it via Zoom, um, but yeah. you could practice, if they're doing it in a building somewhere, you could practice there or you could join them on Zoom if they, if they have a Zoom link. So that's kind of a little bit about the history of it mm -hmm. and then what it is, I, I guess I'll just jump into how you how you'd do it as, as well. Um, so centering prayer, as I said, is, is meditation and a, a relationship with God. So you sit comfortably with your eyes closed as your intention to sit with God. And then to begin your, your prayer time, you introduce interiorly a, a, what we call a sacred word. It's usually one or two syllables, God, ocean. It could be a color. It could be Jesus. It could be faith, trust. You introduce that word as your intention that you're opening to the presence and actions of God within. Mm -hmm. And then as you're sitting there, as you begin engaging your thoughts, and what I mean by that is if you begin thinking about all the things you did before your sit, or you begin thinking about the errands you're going to run after your sit, you realize you're now sitting with yourself and your thoughts and your planning and plotting. So you reintroduce that word to come back to the present moment and the purpose of your sit, of sitting with God. So you use that sacred word when needed just to come back to the present moment and let go of your engaged thoughts and then you even let go of that sacred word. So it's not used as a mantra. It's just used when you notice you're engaging your thoughts so that you can come back to the present moment. Right. 
And that's what you do. So if you're sitting for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you use your word, sacred word, when needed to come back. And sometimes you naturally bring yourself back and you don't even need your word. So that's, I guess, a little history of what is centering prayer and how long it's been around and, and how, how you do it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so... I, I guess it's, you know, for me, I sort of think of it as a hybrid model of like prayer and um, meditation, you know, because after reading your book where you explore a lot of the themes about what it means to sit in silence, you know, to be listening as well as speaking, you know, with God during that time, as well as abstaining or not abstaining, but doing neither, right, is the sort of third tier of, of that uh, movement. Um and it really speaks to the power of silence, right? Which many people have spoken about before. Um, but, you know, reading your book, it, you really get the sense of like you, as you, Rich, have really felt this power in your life as well, in, in its ability to connect you with God, to transform the way you relate to yourself and to others as well. Right. Um, so maybe, you know, what, what does the power of silence mean to you? Um, I guess what it does over time and continues to do over time is it, I, I let go of who I am not. And that's really what you're doing in Centering Prayer. You're letting go of engaged thoughts, which also can include things we tell ourselves that aren't true, whether we're anxious or worried or not confident. I let go of who I am not and become who I am mm-hmm. and then have, and, and even have the courage, I guess, outside of my centering prayer sits to, to become this person. So I guess it connects me to my true self because a lot we're many people, including myself. Um, it's a struggle where we want to do something and then we back off and don't do it, or we're afraid to do it, or, or we think someone else should do it, or I'm crazy to try that, or we don't have the confidence to do it. Yeah. So for me, it, it connects me to my true self really on a daily basis. And my true self is, is a journey. It, it, it's while I'm alive on this earth, it, it's going to continuously, let, I let go of who I'm not and, and become who I am and be the person that I need to be even, even for that very day. Mm-hmm. So how do you know, let's say in, in, out of your sitting sessions, how do you know, you know, let's say what's the true self versus the maybe we say false self, uh, or illusory. I don't know which word you sort of prefer to use. Um, I guess for me, at least it's worked for me. I guess I'll call I have my true self <laughs> barometer. I'll call yeah. it. I'm a big believer in affirmation. A big believer in affirmations. So these are single sentence statements of of things I want to do in my life, whether it's financial personal health, mental or physical health, um, things with my family, things in my career, things with my website. They're single sentence statements. So I read them to God before my centering prayer sits and then really let them go and let them brew with God. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I often read them at night before I go to bed and just kind of let them brew while, while I'm sleeping. But I, I guess my true self barometer is they, they stick and stay in, as things I should work on. If there's, you know, an inner peace and calm about them, if there's an excitement about them, um, even if they move me out of my comfort zone, I, I, the things I need to try and do. Yeah. And then lastly, they don't harm me or harm others. So that's, that's worked for me. So I, I think of them as my true self barometers. And if, the, if that criteria meets, they, they stay 
Mm-hmm. And I always bring them to God, thinking it's not it's partnered together. What do you think, God? Should I do these or not? So I consider I'm um, partnering with God, giving them to God, doing my centering prayer sits, and then getting up and moving throughout my day, and then looking at them from time to time and just seeing do they you know do they still make sense? Do they still fit? And as long as I'm, I consider them, I'm partnering with God on them. I'm not I'm doing them with God. I'm not doing them outside of my relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And I really like that sentiment of, you know, doing everything with God. And um, I think it's a very powerful way of approaching the world where you feel less alone, right? And less like you have to make all of these insane decisions and, and whatever it is and somehow let a force that is greater than ourselves as an individual uh, be there as well, but with the faith or the trust or the experience of that being a force of good right and so knowing that those two things are happening together it perhaps gives the courage needed to take those steps out of your comfort zone or to do the thing that makes you anxious or whatever it is in order to you know feel a little bit of security while you're doing those things right as opposed to just being with the fear or the anxiety of what what's going to happen right Right. No, I completely, completely agree. It's just a, a constant partnership with God. I'm not, I'm, I'm not alone. And, and, and I like to remind people, you know, God comes with you. So you're sitting, yeah. I think of it as I sit with God and then I walk with God and God comes with me. It's not God says, I'll see you at your next sit, sit rich. <laughs> it's God's, we're sitting and then we're getting up and walking together and, and right. moving through life and partnering through life together on everything that that I do. Yeah. And, and I have to remind myself of that frequently that God is always present. I'm not, I'm not alone. He's he's God is with me. Spirit is with mm-hmm. me. And have have you always been in this mindset, you know? Were you raised up like this? Um I mean I I happen to know the answer, but <laughs> I'd like to hear your story anyway. <laughs> um no, I was not. I I, I um probably would have been raised Roman Catholic if my mother, my mother passed away when I was three and a half. So she was, she was a Roman Catholic and I think a pretty devout Roman Catholic. So if she was alive, I probably would be Catholic, but um, she passed away and, and we didn't continue in Catholicism. My dad then remarried about a year and a half later. I remember in middle school, I was in junior high. I remember we went to a Unitarian church for a year or two years, I believe. And then when I was in high school, I think I was about 16, I was invited to go to a youth group, and that was backed by a, a local Baptist church. So that was kind of my first exposure to God mm-hmm. and, and the Bible and, and taking a look at the Bible. And then I took a break, I guess, from, from it while I was in college. And then when I came, I lived at home for a few years till I got myself settled. And at that point, my dad and my mother... Um, we're going to the United Church of Christ, and they asked me to come along one Sunday, and I did, and I and I liked it. It was it was a nice church. I liked the, the pastor, and I spent about twenty years. I'm in between churches now, but I spent about twenty years in in that church. Mm-hmm. So it was a non-denominational Protestant church. Right. And then I guess I discovered silence. Probably in uh, 2012, 2013, just reading books by Carl McCullman. He talked a lot about contemplative prayer. I don't remember him mentioning a practice he did, but he still talked a lot about silence. So I would just sit in silence 
But then it wasn't until 20, late 2013 I came across a book called Healing the Divide, Recovering Christianity's Mystic Roots by Amos Smith. And in this book, he talked about a practice called Centering Prayer that he had been doing for about 15 years. And that immediately intrigued me because I thought there's now there's something I can do in this silence. I was just sitting there and it was hard and, and difficult, but here is a practice and a way of opening yourself to silence. So it resonated with mm-hmm. me and, and I, I guess began dabbling in it, reading other books about Centering Prayer by other authors, and then in June of 2014 decided just to practice it as much as possible twice a day for 20 minutes, and I really haven't looked back from that point. Mm. So that's a little bit of, I guess, my history of uh, church and and religion and and God, and then kind of finding the contemplative path. Right. And what I also really appreciated in in reading your story of um, your relationship with God is how, you know, in the beginning of, of your life, you sort of had the the what we might call a typical view of kind of you know god is in the sky as a big as a the judge of all things and you know it's all about uh preventing yourself from going to hell and going to heaven and you know things like that um whereas when you started with the contemplative practices you know you moved more into the experiential side of things of sort of seeing god as the being of everything right and this it, it's just a different viewpoint um and what's really interesting about that is how you know we're all i feel like i'd like to get your thoughts on this right so some people have spoken about this thing called a religious instinct right which is kind of this idea that at least in most people um there is something inside us that is geared towards a religion of sort. It doesn't have to be a particular religion, but just the fact of being part of a group that sort of, you know, looks to understand the world and and the meaning and things like that. And it guides us along different paths. And, you know, perhaps it's one of the reasons why religion has basically been around as long as, you know, modern day humans have been around for six, seven, ten thousand years. Right. And even today, with although I'd say there's probably more atheists or self-proclaimed atheists than they've ever been, um, you know, even then, those people still have this yearning for meaning, right, to understand what's going on, to have answers. And some look to science, which is fair enough, because that's the sort of forefront of human knowledge uh, and explanation, but rarely... um, it doesn't give an answer to like, how do I find meaning in my life? How do I find my sense of self in the world? Um, at least in my experience, it, it doesn't really provide those kind of things. And so you end up trying to look for other things. And that's why I think, you know, there's been this influx of like Eastern traditions in the Western world where it's like not associated with the typical religious frameworks, but still provide that that depth of, I mean, it's really hard to even conceptualize properly, but I mean, do, do you know what I mean by that? I do. And, and, and I guess that's what I like about centering prayer is it's, it's that plus a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it is, I guess it goes a little further, at least in my opinion, from being just meditation to being really a relationship with God and, and connecting to the universe or spirit, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. God. Um, and, and, 
deepen this relationship. So that's what I, I like about it. I think yeah. for me, it, it helps me go even deeper and add even more depth to who I am and, and connecting to this powerful source and, and letting it drive my life rather than just meditating and seeing how that can change me. I think it makes, it gives it more depth. I, I think it, it, you go deeper mm-hmm. perhaps because you're opening to the presence and actions of God as part of your practice, right. meditation practice. Yeah. And, and it, it is really about that sense of openness, right? And not trying to control the outcomes. And it's a very interesting dynamic because um, it, it seems counterintuitive, at least from a sort of rational perspective of like going into the state of silence and just seeing what happens, right? And sort of allowing things to unfold in front of you rather than trying to create the outcomes that you desire. And it's not that they're mutually exclusive, obviously, right? We're action-oriented creatures in the world and we have to do things to make things happen. But there is a layer of, um, you know, being guided that, you know, the centering prayer or something of that sort seeks to aid or be a part of the journey, right? Right. I mean, I think it, it truly helps you let go of who you are not and become who you are. So like kind of all the clutter kind of gets pushed, gently pushed aside. And then what emerges is what you should be doing. Or, or you even in your everyday life, you know, you learn to pay attention to what matters and, and let go of, of what does not. So I think the openness and centering prayer, then you're open to life and, and opportunities. And, you, and I think you start seeing things that you didn't see before and notice before or maybe other people that perhaps have been trying to get your attention, you're finally giving them the attention and paying attention. Right. So it is a paradox. The letting go really opens you up to discover who you are and to see things that you missed maybe a year or two or three years ago. So as you, as you keep, as I keep doing a practice like this and, and letting go, it seems to open up a lot more than, than, than the letting go yeah. might do. But but it's at a much more profound level, right? It's not just like, ah, don't worry about it, kind of letting go. It's more of a real experiential sense of it's okay, right? I'm just going to let that be, right? Whether it's thoughts or emotions or things like that, um, it allows us to create this distance between them so that we don't feel so uh, trapped by them or overwhelmed or overpowered by our thoughts and emotions and then let go and what remains can be seen clearly for us to then take the, you know, what appears to be the best action at the time. Right. And the, uh, I mean, and I guess, and you kind of nailed it there. I mean, one of the fruits of the practices, you know, outside of the practice, you learn to be a better observer of your thoughts. So the letting go we do in centering prayer comes with us outside of our practice and you can realize those are just thoughts. You can observe your thoughts and say, time out. Why am I thinking this way? Or this isn't true. And, and kind of let go of, of, maybe have some fun with it and let go of the, some of the things we tell ourselves that, that aren't true. Yeah. So you, you become the observer of your thoughts and realize those are just thoughts. That's not really me and, and what I'm truly capable of accomplishing or doing. Right. And the same for emotional experiences, right? Like we certainly can't, Right. for the most part, control when emotions come up. Um, 
but with a practice like this we can learn to really manage them more effectively for the most part let's say i guess it takes practice to get better and better at it right i mean you can take a step back and and notice your whether you're feeling feeling very anxious or feeling very worried or feeling very sad or feeling very overwhelmed and, and just realize that i'm feeling that now but that's not who i am but i think it's good to recognize him and then you can kind of hopefully gently let go of them. But obviously for people that have gone through a ton of trauma or, or have very deep feelings of, of worry, anxiety, depression, you know, I certainly think they should see a professional, whether it's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, if it's something that they're not capable of observing and then letting it go. Mm-hmm. There's some people that have some serious problems that, that need that extra help of, of a professional. Yeah, so definitely. they can probably actually they could benefit from you know centering prayer and a you know a professional as well. And then there's other instances where on our own we can observe that I'm worried, I'm anxious, I'm feeling pretty sad, and then realize uh, that's not me. These are just things I'm feeling right now, and then slowly they they dissipate. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And there's certainly times when people you know need the help of a professional, and that's great. Um, and it's interesting that you know, much of modern psychological training incorporates aspects of mindfulness and meditation um, as well as the various other sort of intervention strategies for, you know, trauma treatment, things like that. But there is that component to it. Um, And more than that, it's like uh, there's also this, um, you know, sense of like, okay, well, when we work with clients, what's their spiritual or religious belief system and how can we help them capitalize on the support systems that are involved there in order to you know make the most benefit in this client's life and so it's a really nice like integrative thing where you know what you and i are talking about now isn't really separate from that it's just perhaps one element that is a sort of uh, self-help kind of a practice we could say um but even so, there's all sorts of guided things and, you know, you read books and you learn and it's not just purely um, try it out and see kind of thing. Um, but actually on that note, I really liked one of the quotes that you quoted in your book by a, a woman named Cynthia uh, Bourgeau, if you pronounce it like that, I do not know. And it is that the promise of... I think that's I think that's Bourgeau, right. yeah. <laughs> I mean, B-O-U-R... I think that's how you say yeah, it. Yeah, B-O-U-R-G... I think it's Cynthia Bourgeau. Yeah. That's how I say it, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you know, I hope she understands um, if she's alive, which I do not know. Uh, B-O-U-R-G-E-A-U-L-T. Uh, that's not a very, you know, phonetically English uh, easy word to say. But she says, the promise of contemplative prayer is that if you show up, things will start to change, right? And what I really liked about that quote is that there's the sense of like, you don't have to know exactly what's going to change. You just have to know that this practice is something that's powerful um, and good. And if you do it repeatedly, you'll see how things start to change. And you don't have to worry about, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? How could I be doing it better? You know, all these things that sort of distract from the practice itself. Instead, just say, okay, I'm just going to show up, you know, follow the instructions to the best I can, be open and see what happens, right? And I I thought that was a a really powerful 
um, piece. No, I mean, and that's so true. You notice, I guess, the fruits of the practice outside outside of the practice. Um, yeah. Our job really is just to show up and, and open to God and trust God. I think of it as a reverse prayer. I think of it as God is praying in me what God knows I need. And I, and I begin noticing these things over time. So, you know, for me, you know, I, I, mm -hmm. since I've been practicing centering prayer since June of 2014, I've noticed many things God has blessed me, graced me with, you know, more confidence in myself, more excitement to live and enjoy life, being more present, um, less reactive and more willing just to listen to people and give them the space they need and not jump to criticizing or thinking that what they're saying doesn't make any sense, just giving them the space they need. It's giving me nudges to get out of my comfort zone and try yeah. and, and do new things. So it's produced just a ton of wonderful fruits um, for me. Yeah. And I, you probably could speak to other practitioners and they'll share some of the same and they'll share other things that I didn't even say. Yeah. Well, no, it's everyone's on their own journey, right? And what's meaningful to you might other people might just take for granted or never come to be a part of, but they get all sorts of other things. Um, but could you perhaps explain a little bit more about this idea of God is praying in you? Yeah, I think of it as, um, you know, I'm opening up to my true self, the person God wants me to be, which really is in me. I just haven't learned to listen to it because I have all these other thoughts and clutter going on. So I, I get to, during centering prayer, I'm really clearing the clutter of thoughts and, and emotions and opening to the things underneath them that, that are kind of an, more of a peace and interior calm and, and confidence. Um, so I, I think of it as God is really, God's very patient and it's just put these things in me, but God is waiting for me to really be ready to maybe put them in, into play. Yeah. Um, so I think God prays in us what God wants us to do or be or, or act, but God is patient and it just waits for us to, to show up and, and notice them and, and move forward. Right. So there is this dynamic of like our responsibility that still comes to the forefront, right? In the sense of like, well, it's not, we can't just wait for it to happen. We kind of have to make the efforts to bring this out of ourselves and to really connect with our true selves. But it takes effort and practice and commitment, um, which is, you know, oftentimes difficult uh, if you're not used to it, right? Building habits is a challenge, as they are a countless number of books about how to build better habits for yourself. Um, but I suppose, you know, how, how quickly after you started this practice, did you start to notice some benefits that reinforced why you're doing the practice? Um, you know, I, I guess I know, as I said, prior to centering prayer, I was just sitting in silence and I didn't have a practice. Mm -hmm. So I, I probably, that probably was a, a six month struggle. I don't think I noticed anything, but I think that's because I was struggling with even sitting in silence. But then after I found the practice of centering prayer, it just seemed to resonate with me and I began doing it um, twice a day for 20 minutes in, in June. So that's when I began noticing um, so I guess once I found a practice that resonated with me and that 
I could do in this silence, then I began noticing um, some of the, some of these fruits. Mm-hmm. You know, I began noticing confidence and, and, and the excitement for life. And then I was more willing to get out of my comfort zone and try and, and do new things. So what was the difference between just sitting in silence and the actual practice? Was it that sense of using an intention um, with that word to sort of bring you back to the present? Um, or what other factors were involved in that? I would say I mean, it was the sacred word that really was used just to bring me back to the present moment and let go of my thoughts. I, did, I guess I didn't know what to do with my thoughts. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just sitting in the silence and, and just being there. So the, it was just a, a, the sacred word really was a tool to bring me back to the present moment as, as part of the practice. And, and then I've, I've spoken to other people that centering prayer doesn't work for them. They need more of a mantra, so they try more of a mantra-based practice. Or some people need to walk while, while, they, while they meditate and they, and they walk. Yeah. So I think, I think you need some type of something to, something to do with your thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> so a mantra, is, you're saying, is, is one way of just constantly saying that mantra and opening yourself to the silence. And then the sacred word is used when needed is another way to open yourself to God and let go of your thoughts. So I guess once I knew what do I do with my thoughts, then it made sitting in silence easier. I mean, you, we're always having thoughts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I have a ton of thoughts and other times I have very little thoughts. But thoughts are part of you know, meditation. But once I knew what to do with them and how to deal with them, it made it easier for me. Right. It was more structured. Um, I mean, yeah, we have, I think they say like 60,000 thoughts a day, which is an insane number of right. thoughts. <laughs> right. Um, and it also kind of puts into perspective how seriously we take some and not seriously we take others. And that there's no necessary reason why that needs to be the case. Right. And that's how we can kind of challenge the truth or the validity of some of the thoughts that we feel but so i suppose what you're saying is like in the beginning you were just sitting in silence and letting your mind run and wander and just just seeing what happens as opposed to once you introduce this element of focus uh, attention focus then you could really move not through but when thoughts came up you didn't just follow them and just see you kind of refocused to bring back to that present moment and experience the sort of the gaps between the thoughts, although they still kept coming, um, that gap, that silence, that inner silence, right? So uh, that's a good point, right? Is it's not just the external silence that's a factor. It's the internal silence that really is the sort of transforming power. Right. Yeah. Right. Right, you you have the external world and the internal world as well, and we and you try to go to a kind of a distraction-free environment, but sometimes it's not easy to, easy to do that. So yeah, we try to practice it in as a much of a distraction-free environment because then we have then we're dealing with our internal yeah. the internal noise, as you said. Um, yeah, and and as you say, it's about finding something that works for you as an individual, right? Because not the same thing works for everyone. That's the beauty of the diversity of humanity, right? But it also comes at a cost sometimes when it's like, well, this works for some people, but not everyone. So you're going to have to try a bunch of things before you find what works for you, right? Um, And whatever does work for you is good. I mean, hopefully speaking. Um, Now, this other thing that I I wanted to talk to you about was this idea of um, one of the exercises in the book 
I mean, it wasn't like a prescriptive exercise. Well, I don't know, was it? But it was, how would God respond to you, right? And I, I've done a similar exercise um, where it was about how would the compassionate version of myself speak to me, right? Uh, or think about this situation uh, where I suppose it was the sense of like this the most compassionate version of me talking to me, right? And it reminded me of that, but at yours was at a, a much sort of higher level, let's say. Um, and I think it's a really profound exercise to say to myself or to oneself, you know, here's, here's all my thoughts about this situation or about myself. Now, how might I think about this differently from another perspective? Um, and you might want to rephrase that and not think about how I might think of this differently and say, okay, well, what is God saying to me in this situation? And it's, it really comes through thoughts anyway, right? It's not like you're going to hear voices speaking to you as such. At least that wasn't my, my experience when I tried it. Um, but how do you find this exercise to be helpful for you and, and for other people? Sure. And I think you're referring to in the book where, and I, a couple of years back, I, I was I, once a month. I, I had a, I went to see a spiritual director, which was a nun at a kind of a local retreat center, mm -hmm. and she was really she was neat. She was she had been practicing centering prayer uh, since the seventies, mm. so she was years and years ahead of me. So it was neat just to sit and just talk with her and li and listen with her. But that was an exercise that she had suggested to me. I think at one point I was just stressed over life and, and my teenagers and things we were just struggling with, my wife and I, with our kids. So um, she suggested the idea of just journaling to God and, and writing your name down and journaling to God. Just dump, what, what, what are you worried about? What's on your mind? And then she said, when you're done, write the word God and then say, how would God respond? My initial reaction was, you know, I don't have a, I don't have any right to, to do that. And she says, just forget about any rights you have. What would God say to you? Yeah. And, and that was kind of neat. So that's where I, I began finding, well, with where I was at with God and God being, you know, a loving, compassionate presence within, you know, within me and outside of me and walking with me in life and partnering with me in life. And my response was, you know, God was doesn't want me to feel anxious, doesn't want me to be wary, doesn't want me to be going through all this, wants to help me, wants to partner with me on it, and, and most of all loves me and says, you don't need to feel this way. You're not alone. I'm, all, I'm always with you. Mm -hmm. So that was just a neat exercise. It just calmed me down, and, and, it, and that's how I think God would good respond. I don't think God wants us to, to feel that way. God's not up in the sky yelling at us or criticizing us. I think God wants us to have wonderful lives and, and be happy and not be stressed. And God wants to, us to know he's always, he, she is, is always with us. So that, so yeah, I guess you were referring to that yeah. practice in the book. So I, I found it very helpful once I got over the idea of I can speak for God. She said, I think God will be all right with yeah. that. So just put right down God and see yeah. how he would respond. So, so then I, I guess I shared kind of that exercise in my book at the end of one of the chapters. I remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I, f I did it myself and I found it it was a very interesting exercise um, because it, it also brings you to a point where you're like, you have to think about things from a perspective of, you know, beyond just individual humanity, right? And beyond the sort of like, well, for me, it was beyond the rights and wrongs of, 
you know, shoulds and shouldn'ts. It, it was just like, here's a bunch of, you know, love and goodness, basically, and compassion. And it's like, it's okay that these things are happening. It's not pleasant necessarily, uh, or p potentially very unpleasant, or, you know, very painful, I guess, in some cases it could be, but that it's okay, right? And, you know, the sense of um, it's not your fault it is, a, is another way. And actually, what I really liked about it is, you know, I've recently studied um, some of the emotion regulatory systems in the body, and one of them is the, this uh, soothing system where, you know, uh, once our nervous system gets activated by something like fear or whatever, you know, we get the anxiety, the rush, and it's often, you know, we don't have the capacity because we're not really practiced in it to soothe ourselves from that, right? And to bring us down to a, a much more level-headed playing field of, yes, you know, the situation needs attention or it's difficult or it's challenging as many things are, but it's actually right now, it's actually okay, right? And it's okay to feel okay right now, despite the craziness that might be happening um, outside. And I found that that exercise was a good mechanism to kind of activate that that soothing system switch, right? To bring bring me out of the anxiety um, into just a, a much more calmer and, and peaceful state of being. Um, so yeah, so that was a cool <laughs> uh, analogy. I mean, not hey. analogy. Um, so the other thing that's in your book that was really interesting is this concept of... Um, the two versions of Jesus, right? The faith and experience version and the knowledge and history version, right? And I think that this is a very powerful uh, way of approaching it because instead of approaching, you know, the topic of Jesus, as many people do, sort of conflating both, you really sort of separate them out to say, okay, well, Jesus was a historical, you know, man who lived in... Uh, Nazareth or something like that um, and lived this life and became a spiritual teacher and influencer and you know propagated his message and but never really founded Christianity as such rather it was his followers who some years later uh, developed the Christianity the Christian religion right based on the religious teachings of Jesus um, so what was that sort of lesson like learning for you coming from a traditional Christian background, uh, you know, believing, I mean, I don't know, when you were a kid, like, how were you taught uh, the reality of Jesus? Um, it was probably more so when I was in the Baptist youth mm. group. It was more of a believe in Jesus and be saved or, or and if I don't, I'm, I'm going to hell when, when I die. Right. So it wasn't... It wasn't. I don't remember really learning about Jesus and who he who he was, and it was more of a fear-based <laughs> practice. So it really wasn't until I became more of a contemplative that I that I began thinking differently about Jesus and that Jesus wasn't screaming and yelling at me. Jesus was a, a loving presence. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I, I guess I just enjoy. I thought it was important to in the book. Look at that side of Jesus. Jesus was a, a, what what 
what can the scholars tell us mm-hmm. about Jesus, the historical man that they think was true and, and happened in his life. So I thought it would be interesting to put that in the book. So I, obviously I talked about God, and, and in the book I talked about Jesus being God and human at once, but I thought it was important to maybe pull pull out the divinity of Jesus, even though you can't do that in my opinion, and just look at, well, what was the human Jesus like on earth? What did he do? What actions did he take? What do they think he said? What do they think he did? So that, that's so I enjoy taking a look at that mm-hmm. at that Jesus. But then I think I even in the chapter I, I may even acknowledge it's still hard to separate the two because of because I believe he's God and human at once and mm-hmm. was the human incarnation of God. So I tried to separate him, but then I think I even acknowledge in that chapter it's hard to even though I'm doing it in this chapter. Yeah, but it's very complicated and you know perhaps it's not entirely necessary to do so but just the acknowledgement of the distinction i thought was really important or is really important because you know what you're teaching in this book uh seems to be not that like christianity is the do-all and be-all of everything right but that the teachings of jesus and the life experience as a sort of living embodiment of the divine spirit um, is tremendously powerful and accessible to anyone who wants to be a part of it, right? Um, and that you don't have to be a Christian to, uh, you know, learn and understand from his wisdom, right? And so I thought it, I thought that that was a really important part. And it also allows for, you know, people who kind of are skeptical of religious institutions, let's say, um, which is kind of trendy these days for, you know, probably legit reasons, but also maybe a bit too much, um, is that it allows it to, to disconnect from that, right? So it, it's not this like power move. It's more of a like, no, here's what the real situation was and the consequences and how, you know, I mean, arguably the last 2000 years have been in, in Western cultures have been shaped dominantly by the teachings of Jesus, which is tremendous to think about, right? Um, The fact that, you know, he even only lived till like 30 something um, and had this lasting impact for thousands of years. And even today, I mean, most of our institutions are kind of founded on some version of Christian uh, thought, um, which is not a bad thing in my opinion. It just just is what it is. and uh, so I think that it, it's a good distinction to make uh, for people who are kind of looking to access the wisdom without the, uh, you know, the religious institution being ha- a necessary part of it. I mean, that's a great part too, right? If people want to partake in it. And you do speak a lot about the power of community and religious community. And, and I agree with you um, on all those points about how powerful it can be. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to sort of mention that. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? <laughs> um, no, I mean Jesus. Yeah, you know, Jesus was Jewish, and he really some 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 of the scholars I've read. He he really he he didn't create Christianity. Mm-hmm. He was really reforming Judaism and, and, and sharing with them 
things that shocked them at the time about you know the type of relationship you might be able to have with God and, and that God was within you when you don't need to go to the temple. So I think he was he was shocking and threatening to, to many at the time. But he, as you said, he really wasn't creating Christianity. He was just reforming Judy, Judaism is, is really what I guess what Jesus did. And I think Jesus, you know, everybody had a seat at the table. So if Jesus was alive today, if, if this happened in today's world, I'd like to think we'd be sitting at a table and he would have, you know, um, uh, people of various faiths sitting at the table with him. Yeah. I don't, Jesus was very inclusive, not exclusive. So I think the table might have been a very interesting table full of various people of faiths enjoying a meal together with him. Right. Absolutely. Um and yeah, you mentioned in your book like that he was fully inclusive of everyone, right? And uh, you related that story of, um, I can't remember who it was, some woman who was in, accused of sin of some sort and, you know, was to be stoned to death. And then Jesus says, you know, let he who has not sinned cast the first stone or something. I'm sure that's a bad paraphrase and I apologize for it, but it's a really powerful message to be like, yeah, you know, we all fuck up and do dumb shit or things we shouldn't maybe have done. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we deserve a death sentence or that, you know, we need to follow this um, old way of doing things and that there are other ways that we can approach being in the world that is much more inclusive and, I mean, inclusive of everyone, full stop, right? There's no believers and non-believers or you know, ins and outs, it's like, no, it's everyone, um, which is something I think a lot of today's society is sort of trying to work towards in a sort of complicated way. <laughs> um, but perhaps that's the nature of humans in general is to make things complicated, not make them complicated, but we're complicated because we're very different in a lot of respects, right? Right. I mean, that's definitely true. We're, we're all very different. Um, God, I'm envisioning God looking down at us saying, can't you all just get along? Yeah. <laughs> but it's easier said than done. Yeah. And also, um, you know, it's not even necessarily uh, a bad thing as such. It's just a matter of like how we've evolved to this point. Uh, you know, diversity being an important part of evolution of any species for survival because if everyone's the same one thing can take everyone out just like that so it's not a very good strategy um, and if all humans were on the same page about everything one bad mistake could wipe out the whole population um, and so it there's a good argument that we need some you know diversity of all kinds to keep things going and make sure everyone's doing things keeping them in check and you know, following up on mistakes and things like that, but it's complicated and often ends up quite violent, which is unfortunate. Um, but that's how the world appears to work these days. Um, but we'll see how it <laughs> see how it goes in the future. Have hope, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, how has your work been going in in terms of like teaching other people this? Because I know you do coaching as well, right? So how have other people found your work to help them? Um, yeah, I guess I, I do it in a number of different ways. Obviously, on podcasts, I share Centering Prayer so for the audiences will learn perhaps something that they've never heard of before or, or thought of prayer in that way. Um, I meet with um, 
church groups and do um, like generally they're in about a 90 minute session and we, and we, and we talk about you know, what is centering prayer, how do you do it? And we do a sit together and then we have Q and a time a after the sit as well. So, and then I do one-on-one -on -one coaching and, and this, I guess, so, so the one-on-one -on -one coach, so the church stuff, it, it may, a lot of that is most of the churches really aren't familiar with it. So they're looking for kind of an introductory introduction to centering prayer. Mm -hmm. What is it? Why should I care? How do I do it? And then I just let them ask me questions after we've done a five minute sit together. Um, the, and then obviously the one-on-one -on -one coaching, I, I, I coach different, I've really coached three different types of people is what I've noticed over the years. They tend to fall into one of three groups. They're either brand new and, and they don't trust themselves to begin and create a long-term sustainable practice. So they'll come to me and say, how do I do this? How do I make sure it's sustainable? The second type of person is someone that's maybe already practicing, but thinking, you know what, I'm just skimming the surface. I'm not, there's no depth to, to this. Help me go deeper. Mm -hmm. um, what do I need to do? Um, how do I go deeper? Who, who is my true self and how do I live from that person? And then the third type of person I've coached are, are pastors and, and ministers that say, you know, I'm spending all my time taking care of people and I'm not taking care of myself. So I'm coming to you to help better self-care hmm. because if I don't take care of myself, I'm going to be of no use to, to the people that I'm, that I'm serving. Hmm. So it's interesting as I look back over the years at the different types of people I've coached, um, I know they say you should have an avatar and this is what the, the person, this yeah. is what it should be. But I kind of just, I guess like centering prayer, I let it be and, and it, I'll coach any one of those three types of people. They'll, they'll come to me and I've coached all three different types of people hmm. or three different groups of people. Yeah. That's a very, that's very interesting, um, and it serves all those functions, right? For the beginner, the intermediate, and even the expert who has perhaps lost himself in the service of others and needs some self-care practice. Um, it's very interesting how that sort of all comes together. So, you know, you spoke about the first group of people who um, are hesitant or they don't know how to trust themselves. What did, what did, what did you mean by that? Um, I, I guess they just need someone to tell them how to do it. When do I do it? Mm. So, so someone like that is I'm teaching them what is centering prayer and, and how you do it and, and then helping them remove barriers that are getting in the way, which might be their thoughts on God and does God really love me or is God angry with me? So I'm helping them deal with the barriers to, to, to even practicing mm. centering prayer. And I'm telling them or helping them take a look at their life and, and at least do one sit a day and, and, and saying, okay, we want to build a habit here. What's the best time each day for you to do a sit? And, and in many cases, I tell people, make it the first thing you do as you begin your day. So if you want to begin a practice, I like, I like to tell people, make it the first thing you do and, and try the practice for at least 30 days. And even if it's just five minutes, so get up in the morning, do a five minute sit and then resume your day and just keep at the practice for, th for at least 30 days and see how you feel mm -hmm. and then begin increasing the time from, from that standpoint. Right. So that's a, a little bit about what, what I'll do with, with newer people to it is what is it, what are the barriers that are getting in the way and, and help them decide when should I do this so I can make it a sustainable daily habit or daily practice. Right. So I suppose that's more of the sort of like traditional coach model right of like just being the guide of like here's how you do it 
and here's how you get around these obstacles in the way, um, which is great. Uh, not a bad thing. It's just um, that's very interesting. And uh, so is five minutes the sort of like way you would suggest people to start for 30 days and see how you feel? I would. I think five minutes is pretty reasonable. So at least when I've done it for church, many church groups I speak in front of, and we do a five-minute sit, and people will often say that's it wasn't as bad as I thought it was would be. It wasn't. It didn't seem like an eternity. It seemed okay. Mm-hmm. So I think for people brand new to the idea of silence, I think five minutes is is very doable and not too not too difficult. I wouldn't suggest twenty minutes. Because that probably you may they may not show up for the second second day. Yeah. So, but five minutes is not as long as we all really think it is. Yeah. And people really fear the silence, right? I mean, myself included. Um, I've had that before as well, where you're like you just don't want to be left alone with your thoughts for some strange reason. Um, how do you sort of work through that part of it? And that's true. I mean, I I've never had that problem, but I've heard of people because then you then you're with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people keep themselves busy so that they don't have to feel their thoughts. So no, I, I, it makes perfect sense. Some people have dealt with some maybe very traumatic traumatic pasts. So keeping busy is a way of pushing that all back down and in and and out, you know, not and hidden. Um, so I, I guess so. That's why I, I say that's take baby steps, and that's this even if it's one or two minutes. So for someone with the idea of silence is completely terrifying to them, I might even back it down and say, why don't we start with one or two minutes and slowly, you know, add minute by minute from time to time. So for so for someone extremely yeah. scared of silence, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with even starting with as low as one minute, just just to just to try it and slowly build up the stamina um, of two and three and four and five minutes. Yeah, baby steps. Why not? Who's counting, right? <laughs> right. You're just doing it for yourself. Um, no one's watching. Um, but listen, Rich, this has been a, a really wonderful conversation. So thank you. Um, where can people find you, buy your book? You know, please promote whatever you'd like. Sure. The best place to find me is silenceteaches.com. If they come there and subscribe, they'll get. I have a free short ebook on centering prayer. That way, they can learn more about what is this practice and how do you do it. It's a it's a quick read. And then, if they discover they want to go a little bit further, uh, my book is on my website as well, and they can check out my book on my website as well. But really, the best place to find me is silenceteaches.com for my free ebook, and then I send out a week a weekly meditation which really is more is focused around centering prayer every Monday it goes out and shares kind of a meditation and then helpful and other helpful information I'll, I'll, I'll put on it whether I've done a, a video that I think they enjoy or whether I, I saw an article that I thought they would enjoy I'd, I'll add that on there too but silenceteaches.com awesome I'll include that in the description um, I recommend the book and thank you I look forward to chatting with you again soon great no thanks a lot for having me on All right, take care.